just give some kind of visible indicator. Revelation chapter 21. We're getting there. I just hope Jesus comes back before we finish, you know. You'll get a lot more out of that, believe me. Now, as we come to chapter 21, the book on this earth, if you would, or the whole history of this earth, this world as we know it, is now complete. It is over. What began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, When God spoke matter into existence in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And and the earth that was formed as God spoke it into existence there in those early verses of Genesis has now at this point complete. It's, It's over with. It is no longer existence. Its course is complete, and it is done away. Well, how does that happen? I mean, how how does that actually... I mean, we know how the world comes into existence, that God just spoke it into existence. But what will actually happen to the physical matter that is this planet? Well, for the answer of that, Peter writes an epistle to the church. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter describes how God will dissolve the current order of creation as we know it. He's speaking of the last days and he's exhorting the church to be ready for the return of Christ and he's giving to them various signs that we're to watch for and and, and be aware of so that we're not asleep when Jesus returns. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, "Where people will say where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this, he says, they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. He's referring to, of course, Genesis chapter 1, where God spoke it into existence. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So he says that that first order, that first creation that God created in a type or in a picture, in a parable or a figure, it was destroyed in Genesis chapter 6 when God flooded the whole world and saved only Noah and his sons, you know, through the ark and, and all the rest. And he says then in verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now, what we experience, what Peter walked upon almost 2,000 years ago, the streets of Jerusalem, that he would look up and see the same blue sky that we see. He would look up at night and he would see the same, you know, host and order in space that we see, that we partake of. He says that this world, the heavens and the earth which are now, and he's going to tell us the destiny of them, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. Now, we've spoken of that in the last few studies. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, that is, of his return, his coming, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements, listen carefully, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens, and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Now, it was very difficult for me to not dig into that passage a little bit more and kind of discover and uncover kind of the point behind Peter's giving to us that information. But suffice it for now for us to see that the destiny of this present world and what's going to come of the matter that we now experience, Peter is very clear. He tells us three things in that passage. First of all, that this world, this present order of matter, is first of all being kept or reserved, he says, unto fire, he says, wherein, second of all, the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, And that third of all, everything else will be dissolved. That that is the current course of this world and where it is destined to be. Now it's interesting to me that many times when God creates something, He often instills or, if you would, programs the ultimate destiny of that creation into the being itself. For example, we all know a little bit about DNA. You know, the building blocks that make us who we are, that, that programmable, you know, matter within us that holds the genetic code and that will ultimately determine at the time of our, really at the time of contraception, everything that we will be when we are fully developed. The color of our eyes, our height, our hair color, our personality, probably traits that we don't even understand are all tucked into programmed into the DNA at the time of conception, at the time when that first cell is formed. So too, also, when God made the world and spoke it into existence, he also programmed the ultimate destiny right into the very basic building blocks of what it is. The basic building block of all matter, everything physical that we can touch, including the very flesh that our spirit lives inside of, is made up of multiplied gazillions of atoms that are organized and compacted together in a way that make matter what it is. But what is the atom, that basic element? And that's what Peter's talking about when he uses that word element, the very fibers of all existence. What is an atom? 
Well, inside the nucleus of an atom, what you have is this little ball that is packed full of these positively charged protons. And then, if you were to kind of blow it up into like, a, a, you know, a size that we could observe, there would be a massive amount of space outside of that nucleus. And then surrounding that nucleus, there is a, a, a bunch of electrons that are spinning around the nucleus of that atom so fast that it gives that atom a physical feel. But interestingly, that, that atom, this matter, every building or the building blocks of everything that's physical that we can touch is mostly space. You have the nucleus filled with those protons, and then a large buffer, and then these electrons that are spinning so fast that it makes things feel physical. It's almost that everything physical almost doesn't even exist. But inside this atom, there remains this incredible mystery. See, you might not have heard me say it, but I said that inside the nucleus of that atom, there is a multitude of positively charged protons. Now, there's a scientific law that's called Coulomb's Law of Electricity. And Coulomb's Law, and we, all, we might not know what it is by definition, but we all understand it, is that like charges repel. If you take the positive side of a magnet in your right hand and the positive side of a magnet in your left hand and try to force them together, what happens? It doesn't work. I mean, if the magnet is weak enough, you can make it happen. But if there's any strength in that charge, you won't be able to do it because those positive charges repel one another. Same thing with the negative. Now, all of the protons in the nucleus of an atom have a positive charge. And so, therefore, by the very nature and laws that God made, what should that atom be doing? It should be flying apart. Because everything inside of it is resisting and pushing away from each other. And yet, for some reason, that scientists, even to this day, cannot explain, the atom does not dissolve on its own. It stays perfectly intact. And so confused are the scientists on why this takes place that they came up with a very scientific name for this mystery. They call it atomic glue. Very brilliant, you know, that there is some unexplicable force that is holding the nucleus of an atom together that we cannot understand because it violates every scientific law that we know. Now, you and I, we know what is holding the nucleus of that atom together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus and the attributes of Jesus, tells us very clearly that he, Jesus, holds all things together by the word of his power. That the same word that spoke in the beginning, let there be light and let there be dry land and let it appear and let the heavens above separate from the heavens beneath and let there be a firmament and let there be animals and trees. That, that God that spoke those things, he holds it together. He alone holds the authority to keep the atom intact. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says that by him all things consist. It's the same thing that all things are kept by him. And what did we read just a minute ago in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 7? It says that the things that are of this world, this order, this creation, they are what? Kept in store. How? 
by the word of God. Now, what happens when the nucleus of an atom lets go? Well, we live in the atomic age, don't we? Scientists have discovered that if you bombard the nucleus of an atom with slow-moving uranium, that you can upset the balance of the electrons, and you can split the atom. And what happens when you split the atom? An enormous amount of energy is released, right? Hiroshima, Nagasaki, you know. We've seen the pictures of the explosions that take place when an atom is erupted. And yet one day, the God who holds all things together by the word of his power is going to say, let go. The same God that said, light be and light was, will say, let go. And matter will no longer matter, believe me. The color you paint your kitchen won't matter at that point. The type of car, what it looks like, it won't matter anymore at that point. He's the same God that, by the word of his power, keeps our lives together, keeps our families together, keeps keeps us stable, keeps our psyche together. David said, Psalm 23, that he restores my soul, my psyche, that he is my stability, my strength. All things held together by the word of his power. But the course of this world, the destiny of everything that we know to be physically, will ultimately be dissolved. The elements, the basic building blocks will melt with the fervent heat. Why, you ask? Well, the answer is Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. John sees after the final chapter is closed on this book, on on this world, the book of this world. John sees and he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Now, I'm a beach guy. You know, I mean, if I get my choice of where we're going to go, Georgia's a woods woman. You know, she likes the, the, and I like that too, appreciate it. But if I have my way, I, I, I cannot stand still ever, but I can lie on a beach for a full day and not move. You know, I love the beach. And when I first read this, I'm like, okay, no sea, you know. And it can be a little bit like, okay, well, this is supposed to be heaven and all. But I think it's there on purpose. Not, not to, you know, make us say, oh, I'm not sure if I really want to go. But, man, Paul the Apostle said to the church at Rome, he said that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And whatever your glory is, whatever it is for you that you look at and say, this is what heaven would be to me, man, you have no idea the things that are prepared. There will be no sea. And there will probably be no of whatever it is that you're looking forward to, but the things that will be are so far beyond anything that we could imagine or enjoy or articulate in our finite minds and our small understanding now. There will be no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, verses 1 and 2 give to us, really, the outline of chapter 21. Chapter 21 breaks into two sections. First of all, verses 3 through 8 speak to us of a brand new earth. 
A brand new earth that God is going to create. And then verses 9 through 27, the end of the chapter, talk to us about a bright new city. So verses 3 through 6, the new earth. And then verses 9 through, I got my numbers wrong. You get the idea. 9 through the end of the chapter are a bright new city. And he describes to us those two things. So in verse 3, he describes for us this brand new earth. He says, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle, or if you would, the tent or the dwelling place. You know, that's what tabernacle means. It's a, it's just a King James word that means a tent or a place to live, a dwelling place. It means literally that the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and god himself shall be with them and be their god the first attribute that we read about this new world that god will create the first thing that's mentioned i mean if you if you were the one that was making something the first thing that you would mention would be the highlight the thing that makes it what it is the glory of it And the first thing that God says about the new world that he's going to create is that he is going to live among or tabernacle, dwell among his people. Now, in John's gospel, it talks of the first coming of Christ and it says that he dwelt among us or dwelt among them. And we beheld his glory. He dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. It's the same idea. And in the new world, it isn't going to be a three-year chunk of time out of a 7,000-year span. But it will be the normal course of things that God will dwell among his people. One of the things that we seek to instill in our kids, probably with more emphasis than much of the other things that we seek to instill in them, is that the most important thing in all of life and the most important thing in their lives is that God is with them. See, everybody that lives has certain types of advantages. There are many advantages that a person can have. There are people that can be born into money, people that can have that kind of stability or or a good education, or people that, you know, you kind of can look around and there are people in the world and you just look at them and say, they've got their ticket written for them and they just can't fail, you know. And other people have other types of advantages. Some people are athletic. You know, some people have a a real sharp mind, you know, and uh, other people have good looks, which somehow is more important than all of that, you know, and, you know, it just somehow works for them, you know. And, And there are many different types of advantages that people can have. But no matter what someone's advantages are, there are always weaknesses present as well. And, and, and therein lies the problem of life, is that you might have it so good that you might be one of those people that say, man, they've got their ticket written for them. I mean, they just got it all together. They've got it made. But underneath all of that, where no one sees, there can be some incredible vulnerabilities, things that can offset the apparent advantage of all of those other blessings that they have in their life. And, and what you discover the longer that you live is that really we all have it about equal. I mean, the person that has maybe financial stability has issues that you don't have that you would not take their money if you had to deal with their issues. The person that has physical health perhaps lives in poverty. 
You know, and, and so it seems like there's this, there's always this thing. And so, you know, whatever the advantages of life are and whatever the weaknesses of life are, it all kind of offsets itself. But there is one thing that makes you inconquerable. And that is if God is with you. It's the best thing. It's the only thing that really matters in this life. And it's the only thing at all that will set you in a place of stability and strength. When God is with a man or a woman, their strengths in many places, in many ways, become weaknesses. But their weakness becomes irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore what their weaknesses are because God is with them. We read of Joseph that young man who was hated by all of his older brothers. Though he had the ticket written by his father that he was the favored one, yet he was hated by all of those that had power to undercut and undo that which his father could do in his life. But yet, what do we read? God was with Joseph. And whether he was a slave in Potiphar's house, or whether he was in the prison system, or whether he was the prince of Egypt, it was God being with Joseph that made him who he was his source and his strength. We read of Joshua, it tells us that God was with him. Insurmountable obstacles in that man's life. An inconquerable task to subdue and then divide the land of Canaan, the inheritance of God's people. Impossible for the natural man to do, and yet it says that God was with Joshua and he was able to succeed. Good success. So that at the end of his life, he would look back over it all and he would say, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord because he has been tirelessly on our side. Young Samuel that we're learning of on Sunday mornings, it says that God was with Samuel. And you begin to see a pattern in the lives of these people where it just says that God was with them. And that pattern isn't that they were without weakness or that they were without trial. But the one thing, the the pulse that kind of beats louder than all the others as you examine and consider their lives is that they were people of great stability. That from the start of their life to the finish, there was just this soaring, this constant elevation, this incredible strength that was beyond themselves. And the source of it was not from within, it was from above. It was the strength of God working in them. Why? Because God was with them. And so I'm constantly telling my kids, listen, the most important thing in all of life is that God is with you. You want God with you. Over and over again in the Psalms and the Proverbs, we're exhorted by these men that had God with them that we can't direct our own paths. There's no way that we can plan how our lives are going to go so that we can set ourselves up in a way that, in the end, wow, this is working out great for me. It is not in man, the psalmist declared, to direct his own way or to write his own path. And so therefore, the only hope that we have is that God is with us. Now, on earth that we know now, there are very few of whom it is said that, man, God is with them. Praise God that for us, those that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. But in that time then, we're talking the new heavens, the new earth, the very first and foremost thing of it all is that God will be with them. God will be with us. He will dwell among his people. That there will be a strength and a stability for eternity. Not that comes and goes or that is determinate on our moods or on our health or our circumstances but it will last. God is with them. 
He goes on to say in verse 4 that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The second thing that we read about this new earth is that the tears will be wiped away. Now it's interesting because people will say, well, will there really be tears in heaven? Well, this is the second time in the book of Revelation that we read that there will. In the last verse there of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 17, it talks about how God will wipe away their tears from their eyes in the heavenly scene. Here we see, even in the new earth, that the tears will be wiped away from their eyes. Well, what is this? What's the deal with tears in heaven? I believe that in heaven there will be certain, not for eternity, but there will be a time, a moment when there will be, maybe even in us, some regret. There will be regret of missed opportunities, things that on earth we could have done, things that we could have surrendered, things that we could have lived a little bit stronger for the Lord. And when we get there and we realize those missed opportunities, that there will be a little bit of regret. There might be a tear shed by some of us or by someone else because of a loss of a reward. Paul said that it is possible for the soul to be saved... And yet at the same time the soul is saved, a person can enter into heaven with nothing. That they will not receive a reward. They will pass through the flames in all of their life. Their entire period of time that they had on earth will burn up and vaporize. There will be nothing to show for it. The soul will be saved. But there will be no reward. They'll suffer loss. And I believe that there may be a tear shed over that condition. Whatever it will translate into in that time then could also be that there may be a tear shed in heaven over the absence of a soul that isn't there present. A husband who never came, or maybe a, a child, mature child, a grown child that went wayward and didn't come to the things of, never surrendered, and isn't there. And, and you ask the question and say, well, how can heaven be heaven if this person isn't there, or if they didn't make it? How can that be? How can it be? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know this. It says there that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In Isaiah chapter 65 verse 17, when God talks about the new heavens and the new earth that he creates, and he talks of it as being a place of rejoicing, he says it like this. He says that the former shall not be remembered, neither will it come into mind. And I believe that that's part of what this means when it says that God will wipe away every tear from their eye. That there will be something there where he will exercise from our mind or eliminate from our memory the things that on earth we look back with regret. The reward perhaps that we forfeited through carnal living or for the soul that maybe isn't there because God in his justice, they didn't come to him. And God will take those things out. The former things will not be remembered. Neither will they come into mind. They will be gone. You're not going to remember the, the trials, the tragedies, the difficulties that you had on earth. He goes on to say, and there shall be no more death. That there will be no death in the thing. That we will be eternal beings. And that's an incredible thing to consider. I mean, eternity. He says that there will be no more sorrow, nor crying. Now, on earth, this is just part of life, isn't it? I mean, people let us down. We go through things and we, we kind of put our hope in, in someone or in a circumstance that someone's going to come through, and what happens? They let us down. And, and it causes a sorrow in us, or it causes us to shed a tear. 
Sometimes in this life, there are opportunities that we miss. Things that we wanted to do or ambitions and goals that we wanted to attain. Things that we wanted to see happen in our lives. And as we watch, as those things kind of come and go, or as we progress in age, and those things become less and less of a reality, we can carry with us kind of a sorrow, you know, a crying. Turns into a midlife crisis at some point, you know, and you just realize like, oh, I got to get it, you know, and you just kind of reach out for those things. It's just, that that's the story of life. And what do parents that have been through these things tell their kids when they begin to experience sorrow and crying? What do we say? That's life. <laughs> you know, Because that is. It's just the way it is. But not there. There will be no missed opportunity. There will be no frustrated purposes. There will no, be no letdowns where someone says that they're going to do something, but then it never comes through. Or someone wants to help and their intentions are pure, but they're not able to come through in the thing that they desire. It won't happen. It's heaven. It's glory. It's perfect. He goes on to say there will be no more pain. Now that resonates, doesn't it? I mean, it's like no more pain, pain. You know, I have come to this point in my life where I am addicted to expending energy. It's, I don't know how to explain. I'm not talking about like false energy, like Red Bull and, you know, coffee. I'm talking about like when you wake up in the morning and you have a meal and you are charged, you have a full battery and it's time to hit the ground running. And I, and, and there's something about the way that I'm wired that I love that. I love it when I'm sweating, when my heart is beating, when I'm engaged, when my mind is firing, when everything's kind of in sync and there's a rhythm, you know, I love that. But what's happening now, as I reach the ripe old age of, I'm not going to say it, you know, is that my body is beginning to slow me down. And that is frustrating, you know. Walking up a set of stairs with something on my back and things in two hands and my knees begin to say, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, ow, ow, you know. Working tirelessly on a Saturday from sunup to sundown and then walking into the house like this because my back is saying, you idiot, why did you do that again, you know. And I'm beginning to read these things with a little bit more appreciation than I did ten years ago. No more pain. Now, you listen to all of these things, you know, and it almost sounds a little bit like fairy tale like right? A little bit Disney. God will dwell with them. He'll wipe their tears. There'll be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. For the former things are passed away. And you say, yes, that sounds real good. But you know what? You're just not hitting home. Because it just sounds so unrealistic. Like, how could it be that good? Someone said one time that if it sounds too good to be true, then what? It probably is, right? Now, here's the amazing thing, is that the Lord knew you would be thinking that. That's why in verse 5 it says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said, I know what they're going to be thinking when they read this, John. They're going to be thinking, that's too good to be true. That just, it's just not a reality. It's not realistic. So Jesus says, write, John, that these things are true. Affirm it. Write it down. Tell them. You know, I have to say that my favorite scene in The Passion of the Christ, and I'll never forget it. it just, it's burned into 
you know, the dendrite somewhere in there in my mind is that part where, where he's carrying the cross and he looks at, at Mary and she sees him there and she watches him fall and you can see like the torment of a mother watching her son go through that. And he looks up at her, not in a, in, in a you know, self-pitying manner or mommy, I've skinned my knee type of thing, but he looks up at her and he says, I make all things new. And I, and I just, it hit me it, because I realized that, that what we're reading about, the glory of what is to come, and the reality of it was all paid for and attained in that moment then. That it wasn't in the glory of heaven that he just, you know, kind of scattered his eternal wealth and just made this kingdom. Because what is a kingdom without a people? But it was in the work on the cross and that which he accomplished on earth in entering into our sorrows, entering into our suffering, experiencing the tears that we experience, walking in the sorrow and the disappointment and the letdown, feeling the pain of having the one who ate with me, the one who dipped his hand with me into the thing that he has betrayed me. That if it had been, the psalmist declares, if it had been my enemy or just some acquaintance, then who cares? But it was my friend. It was the person that I was intimate with that betrayed me, that let me down. And it was in Christ entering into that which we experience, our pain, our sorrow, our tears, our regret, our frustrations. It was in that that he made a way wherein we could experience the glory that's being spoken of here in chapter 21. I make all things new. And write, these words are faithful, true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And, and here's what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, it's done. This isn't something that will be. You know, I, I, I kind of have like a, when I, when I prepare these things, I always have like a... I don't want to get too into it, but I always have like a first cut. You know, I take like a piece of paper and I just go through and I write down the things that stick out to me. And the first thing that I wrote on the top of my first cut page for this, you know, which sometimes becomes my introduction and sometimes it doesn't. Tonight it didn't. But but it was, this just seems so unreal to me. You know, because, you know, the, the, the Bible studies or the, the, you know, the doctrine or the word that I get the most out of are the things that are applicable to me now. You know, when I read about how to deal with the trials and struggles of life, when I read about the things that draw me closer to Christ in intimacy now, you know, when I read those things, man, it feeds me. But when I read Revelation 21, it's almost like it, it feels so far off. It feels so surreal that it's almost like I, I don't even, this isn't touching me. It's not reaching me kind of a thing. And, and why this verse is here where he says, right, it is done that I'm the Alpha and the Omega, what he's saying to us is that this isn't something that you look at as this is some distant place that someday we'll experience. Someday, somewhere out there, it will happen. No, he's saying, listen, it is done now. That I am the Alpha and the Omega. He doesn't say, I was the Alpha and I will be the Omega, but I am the Alpha and the Omega, being that all of that is encapsulated in the eternal now, meaning that this is done. It isn't something that will be. It is something that is. 
And the reality of our experiencing it isn't a if, when, maybe, but it is a done deal now. Why? Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he spread on his hands and he said, it is finished. And so our experiencing of the things, the glory that is written here is not something that is detached from our earthly existence now, but it is something that we have an eternal hope. Peter said that the hope that we have, this eternal hope that's in us, is something that is living. He calls it a living hope. The hope of this world is a dying hope. That's where sorrow comes from. That's where disappointment comes from. That's where pain comes from. It's because everything that we put our hope in in this world is fading and dying. But in that which is to come, Peter says that our inheritance in heaven is a living hope, meaning that the longer you live, the brighter and more majestic and real it becomes. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And this is not speaking of some fountain that you get to go dip your hands in and drink water of. Thirst in the Bible speaks of the satisfaction of the soul and the satiation of the spirit and the pleasure of the flesh. Jesus said in John chapter 7, on the great day of the feast, he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly will gush torrents of living water, he said. To the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he looked at her as they sat there by that well where water, physical water was drawn up and and enjoyed. He looked at her and he said, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. But I have water that if you drink of it, it will spring up within you into eternal life and you'll never thirst again. And the thirst that Jesus was speaking of was not merely that which is physical because those appetites come, they are satisfied, and then they return. But that which he provides, that's what he does, is eternal. It doesn't go away. It doesn't fade. It doesn't become old, you know. It lasts. It's lasting. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I love that verse. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says that the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we also may be glorified with him. Then it says very clearly that we are heirs. God himself tells us here that him that overcomes, to him that can take up their cross and put the world behind them and live for heaven for eternity, that will come to Christ, that they will inherit all things. Think of what that means to be an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. That God would have such grace But the fearful, and this is the opposite of those that overcome, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, which is drug users, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part. That means their inheritance, their eternal reward, will be in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
And we talked about that in our, our study last week, and we don't need to revisit it, but you see the contrast of these two inheritances. And so he describes for us this brand new earth that is coming, that Peter tells us, wherein dwelleth righteousness, and he describes for us just a hint, just a sliver of what it means and what it will be. But he goes on in verse 9, and he talks to us of the bright new city. And he says that there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, some have suggested, and, and I'm inclined to agree, agree, that this new Jerusalem, this city, this glorious, bright, shining city that will descend, this new Jerusalem, is not going to be physically placed upon the earth, but rather it will be either suspended in, in some way above the earth, or it will actually be in orbit outside of the earth. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic. If you want to say, no, I don't agree with you, that's fine with me. But, but, but the reason why I, I, I see that and understand it is twofold. First of all, because every time you see the city described, it's described in this way, as something that is descending. It, it never quite touches down. It's just something that is coming down that is descending from heaven towards the earth. The second reason why I think this is because it is, the city as it is described, omnidimensional. Meaning that it is not simply described in terms of square miles of length and breadth, but rather it's described in terms of length and breadth and height. That, that it is cubed in its description, you know, and, and, and therefore it kind of makes the earthly aspect of it, or it's touching down or landing on earth, irrelevant. Because it isn't something that, that you know, as we understand it. If we describe an earthly city, Manhattan, L.A., Tokyo, you know, we say, well, it's this many square miles, and it's this long by this wide, and we understand that that's what this means. Not so with the New Jerusalem. It's length and breadth and height. And we'll talk more about that as we, you know, uncover these verses and we'll look at it. But John sees it descending, and he sees the glory of it, and he tells us there then in verse 11, having that this city has the glory of God, and it says that her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And most likely this is referring to a diamond. You know, the jasper here, you know, in the New Testament, speaking of the diamond, he describes it as that as being clear as crystal, the, you know, the hardest and the most valuable, the most precious of all you know, valued stones, and he likens the light and the glory of the city to that of just being one large diamond, this incredible uh, thing. And then he goes on and he says that it had a wall, great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Now, if you glance down with your eyes really quickly in your Bible to verse 18, it tells us there that the building of the wall of it was of jasper or diamond, and it says that the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. So this wall of the city, if you were looking at this thing as John sees it and as he's describing it, it has this great high wall 
that is majestic, that offers security, if you would, but it is also at the same time transparent. And it almost seems paradoxical. You say, well, why would you have a wall if it's clear as crystal and you can see right through it? What's the purpose of that? You know, we make walls because we don't want to see things or we want to divide, you know, room from room, you know, and, and, and kind of section off different areas to, you know, to their uses and whatnot. But here there's this wall that surrounds the city and it's great and high, but yet it's transparent and visible right through. Why is this? I believe very firmly because he's trying to give to us the idea, paint for us the picture of what life will be like. That there will be security. That's the purpose, you know, of a wall of a city is for security. But yet that security will be with transparency. See, we, you and I, we build walls. Every one of us. We are skilled. We are taught from birth how to build walls for the sake of security. Don't let your vulnerability show. We teach our children, and then they are really taught in school, you know, when they are, you know, kind of jabbed and, uh, you know, picked on and, and all of that because of their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities. And we learn to put up these walls, and these walls are without transparency. We learn to hide those areas of vulnerability, things that people will take advantage of. You know, we, we let our guard down a little bit. We kind of, we, we, we open the curtains and we, you know, let our kind of walls become a little bit translucent so that you can kind of see in a little bit. And we, we let our guard down. We get close to someone. And, and we begin to trust them. We begin to relax a little bit. But then what happens over time is that, well, some of the things that we say, some of the things that we do, they use those things against us or they take advantage of the transparency that we've allowed. And we say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. How stupid I was. I just keep my mouth shut and, you know, and all the rest. And, and, and we fortify our walls. The purpose of our walls is to hide our insecurities, to hide our vulnerabilities so that we're not wounded and taken advantage of. Sometimes we like to build walls around other people, people that we're close to. Sometimes a, a husband and a wife in their relationship, not only do they have their own walls, but they build walls in the other's life too. You know? Sometimes in our homes we build walls because we want to hide things. You know, We have this little laundry area and it's just kind of like ugly, you know. And so I want to build a wall so that we don't see it anymore. And sometimes we do that in other people's lives, don't we? You know, I don't really like that part of you. Just don't let that come out anymore. You know, don't say those types of things. Or don't use that phrase. Or don't talk, or don't like that kind of music. Or don't like that, you know, style of clothing or whatever. Why don't you wear this? Or why don't you, and and we kind of can do this. We begin to build walls because we want people to look the way we want them to look. We don't love them just because of the way God made them. We want to fashion them and mold them into the image that's acceptable to us. That's just the viciousness of life on earth, isn't it? You can never just be who you are. You can never just let it all out because you'll be devoured. But in heaven, there will be security with transparency. There won't be any of that. There's going to be life in Christ. Like Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, listen, I was among you. I was without wax. I dealt with you in sincerity. Whatever I was, that's what I was. You took advantage of me. You hated me. You mocked me. All the rest, he said, but I don't care. You know, my brother's like that. I, I so admire it sometimes. You know, he, he's, my brother's a genius. I mean, off the charts, insane. You know, I can't even begin to describe it to you. And 
he was telling me the other day that during his lunch hour, he works in um, Connecticut at, at this like incredibly fancy office park, you know, where there's these beautiful office buildings. And he said, hey, I went for a run the other day at my lunch hour. I just ran around all the buildings. And I've seen the buildings. They're all made of glass. And I said, okay. I said, that's cool. I just got to ask, didn't you feel like an idiot? I mean, you're out there. It's, you know, you're in this like business park. All these people wearing these million dollar suits. You know, the cheapest car in the parking lot is like, an M series BMW, you know, I mean, this is like, and you're out there in during lunchtime in like your sweats and you're sweating and jogging around the buildings. Like, don't you feel a little funny? He goes, no. He goes, I'm outside getting some exercise. They're not. Why should I feel funny? You know? And I thought, wow, you know, I admire that. But won't it be so nice in heaven when there's no walls, everything's just transparent. He says that it had 12 gates, and at the gates there were 12 angels. Notice, it's not Peter. Peter's not at the gate. (laughs) And it says that the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. I believe that that's on purpose. Why? Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Paul talks about the advantage of the Jew. He's talking to a Gentile church, and he says, what advantage then hath the Jew? He says, much in every way. He says, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Meaning the word of God, the truths of God, the secrets of God were committed unto the Jews, recorded in the scriptures for us, so that we might see and understand and come to know Jesus Christ, of whom it was all foreshadowing. And therefore, our very entering into this city is because of what the Jews did for us in recording the Old Testament scriptures. And I think it's very fitting that the names of those 12 tribes are written on the gates because we owe them a great debt of gratitude. And that had it not been for their faithful receiving and preserving of the scriptures, you and I would not be sitting here right now saved and destined to be citizens in the city. And so the names of the 12 tribes written above the 12 gates And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, if the Jews are responsible for our citizenship or our entering in unto the city by what they did, it was the twelve apostles of the Lamb that lay for us the stability to the structure of what we are in Christ, this thing that's called the church. The Apostle Paul often used similar language when he wrote to the churches. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, the Apostle writes and he says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That, that the apostles and prophets provided for us the stability, the structure wherein we are founded upon and wherein we are able to grow in our strength and in our relationship and our walk with God so that we might be in this place, that we might be stable and strong in this city. 
In the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, when the church was first established, it tells us four things that the church gave themselves to steadfastly. To, first of all, the apostles' doctrine. And then he said fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. But the apostles' doctrine was number one. Why? Because it was through the teaching that was laid out by those that walked closely with Christ. Those that were anointed and ordained to be the teachers of these truths to us. That it is through their doctrine, through this word, this New Testament body of truth that we have. That we become stable as Christians. And I believe therefore it is fitting that the wall of this city is founded upon 12 foundations. That are labeled with the names of the apostles of the Lamb. So important is the apostles teaching. You know, we often say, well, you know, Bible study is Bible study. We have the Holy Spirit, and we don't need any man to teach us, and, you know, we're saved, and we have all of that. And that's true. We do have the Spirit, and we do have an unction, and we do have a relationship with God, and we have all the rest. But so important is the Word of God. So important is the teaching of the apostles. Why? Because it's an anchor for us that keeps us from spinning off into every wind of doctrine. It keeps us stable and steadfast on the narrow way, on the path that we're headed for. When we finish Revelation, most likely that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with Galatians, and we're going to read right through the teachings of the epistles, all the way through to Jude. You know, we'll go through and, and study those things and learn. So that why? So that we can be founded. So that we can be strong in our belief, in our relationship. So that we can have, you know, a brain behind our heart. You know, we want to have a big heart. and We want to be full of Jesus and expending love and, you know, doing those things. But we want those things to be anchored in truth. And so, so important is the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. And then in verse 15, that says that he talked with me, or he that talked with me, had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with a reed, twelve thousand furlongs, the length, and the breadth, and the height of it are equal. Now, amazing, interesting, isn't it? He tells us 12,000 furlongs long, wide, and high. It translates into 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. A cubed city. Never seen one of those, you know. Don't, don't quite understand how it is. Well, what does this mean? How does this work? What's it look like? What's it work like? Well, some, some have suggested that cubed, the fact that this is cubed, means that the living space is not confined only to the ground level. That, you know, we, right now we are subject to the laws of gravity, you know, and everything that we do, we have to do on the surface because we don't have means except it be by elevator or airplane or helicopter to, to leave it, you know. But that it won't be in the New Jerusalem. That it will be cubed, and so therefore, we won't be confined to square miles, but cubic miles, rather. And man, in something 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500, that's a lot of space. There's a lot of square miles and cubic miles in something that big. There are others that have suggested that the reason why there are 12 foundations is because there are actually 12 layers of the city. Now, if you take 1,500 miles high and you divide it into 12 equal sections, 
then that means that there is 125 miles of buffer between one level and the next. So that means you have 1,500 feet long by 1,500 feet wide by 125 miles high per level. Now that's a lot of square miles. 15, what's 1,500 square miles? That'd be like going from, you know, Atlanta, Georgia over to Denver, Colorado, and then going north from Denver all the way up to the border of Canada, and then coming across back to the Atlantic Ocean and back down to Atlanta, Georgia. That's 1,500 miles squared. Now, if you multiply that times 12 layers, that's a lot of space. If you figure that every man, woman, and child that ever lived was saved, and we know that that's not true, but if every man, woman, and child that was ever saved was given an equal inheritance in that city. I mean, I didn't do the math. I'm talking like I did. But you can do the math, you know, and you can figure out exactly how much space that is. But, but it's an insane amount of space. And this is all a city. This isn't just the land, but this is all built up. It's what Jesus was speaking of in John chapter 14 when he said that I am going to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house are many mansions. He created this world in how many days? Six. How long has he been gone? 2,000 years. Glory. Verse 17, it says that he measured the wall thereof 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. Now, a cubit of a man would be from an elbow to a fingertip. That's how you would measure the cubit of a man. But he adds on at the end, that is, of the angel. That means that he measured it according to the elbow to fingertip, but not of John, but of the angel. That means that however big this angel was, it was his cubit that is this 144,000 cubits, and so therefore we have no idea how high this wall is. <laughs> and it says, And the building of the wall was as it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. Now we're going to talk about the significance of each one of these colors. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. And it says, And the twelve gates were of twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. Now imagine the size of that oyster. You know. <laughs> and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, of transparent glass. Now that kind of concludes John's description of the physical attributes of this city. And isn't it amazing how little he gives to us? I mean, he tells us basically what the foundations were made out of, what the gates were made out of and what they looked like, and what the, you know, jewels, what kind of jewels were, were in those things and that they were garnished in them, and that the streets were made out of pure gold like transparent glass. That's all he tells us. What do the houses look like, John? 
I mean, what do they make the roofs of the houses out of? I mean, we use asphalt shingles here. You know, what do they use for roofs? What is a chimney? Is there a chimney? What is a mansion in heaven? John, what does the bathroom look like? What kind of tile? You know, what did they do in there? I mean, when's the last time you were talking to someone about a house that you were looking at? And you call up your mom and you're like, Mom, we found it. We found the perfect house. The foundation is beautiful. I mean, it, it lieth 40 feet on one side and, and, and 25 feet on the other side, all of pure CMU block, you know. And, and, and you describe the foundation, you say in the wall, the height from the ground up is two and a half stories, you know. And you, and you describe this thing and your mom's going, oh no, what are you getting yourself into? Well, that's all John gives us. He doesn't tell us, anything. what does a park look like in the New Jerusalem? What do public lands, you know, if you translate from what we understand, what does all that look like? We don't even know. He just tells us, look, the wall, the foundations, the streets, glory. Isn't it interesting also that the things that people kill, steal, covet, trade their very freedom and life for on earth are nothing but building materials in heaven? You ever hear about the guy who wanted to take it with him? He was very wealthy, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to take it with me. They say you can't take it with you, but I'm taking it with me. And so he had all of his wealth turned into gold dust. And he had a special suit made for his embalming, that he would be embalmed in this suit that had an interior you know, pocket, and all of that gold dust would be placed within that pocket, that interior part of his suit. And so he died, and he was buried, and he goes there, and he sees Peter, I mean an angel, at the gate, you know, and and he's walking, and he's walking real heavy, and he's sweating, and, you know, and everybody's kind of looking at him, because no one else is sweating and walking that heavy, and and so he gets in, and he sees that the gate is closed, and he's there, and he says, ah, I did it. They said you can't take it with you, and I did it, I took it with me. And so they said, "What, what are you talking about? And he rips open the suit, and all of the gold dust comes out on the ground, and everybody's just kind of looking at him. And they say, well, that's great. We're glad you're excited, but why do you have all that asphalt in your suit? You know? Because that's all it is. Think about what we waste our time on, what we give our energy and our affections and our lusts to, and all the rest. In heaven, it's of no value at all. The prophet declared and he said, the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination unto the Lord. We're out of time. And I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Now, this, we're going to buzz through these last couple verses, but this is clear evidence that this is not the same heaven that John saw previously in the book of Revelation. At least two or three other times prior to this, John, when he's in heaven giving the vision, he talks of the temple that is there in heaven. But here it tells us that there is no temple. This is a different heaven, that there is a new heavens and a new earth. I have a lot to say about that, but I don't have time. Verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. 
and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. These last few verses here tell to us the relationship between the brand new world and the bright new city. You remember that this chapter is broken into those two divisions. There is a brand new earth. There is a bright new city. And these last two verses describe for us the integration between these two things and give to us kind of a clue of what that will be. What's the relationship? Why do you have to have both a new earth and a new Jerusalem if in fact the new Jerusalem is large enough and has the capacity to hold all that have ever been saved or all that have ever lived? Why do you need the two things? Now we don't know for sure, but it could be that the purpose of the new earth is for a new order of creation. We have no evidence that our earth is the first earth that God ever created. And there's no evidence that we will be the last. God doesn't tell us those things. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29 says that the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed are for us and for our children. And there's a lot of things that God hasn't told us. There's a lot of things that we don't know. And we'll spend eternity discovering things about God, being enamored by His goodness and His power and His majesty. And we don't exactly know what the purpose of the new earth is and how it will exactly relate with the new Jerusalem, but we do see that the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into this new Jerusalem, that there will be some relationship. And yet we also see that there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles or works abomination or makes a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. So interesting things to think through, to look at, to really let hope arise within us. A living hope that fades not away. Hebrews tells us that the man Abraham, the father of all that believe, that he was a man of great might in a city in Babylon. But yet of all that he had, of all the wealth, of all the prestige, of all the impact, it tells us that he wasn't fulfilled by any of it. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, tells us that he sought for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He knew intuitively and innately that the thing that he was hungering for could not be found on this world. And the result of that is that he lived his life in tents. He took the things of this world very lightly. His life is signified by a tent, which was his relationship with this world, and an altar, which was his relationship with the next. And he knew that nothing on this earth would ever satisfy him. And he leaves for us a testimony and an example of how life works. That the key to enjoying life, the key to experiencing God's blessing, and the key to experiencing and enjoying this present world is to live for the next one. That it's in putting our hope and our affections in things above that we find our purpose and meaning in things below. May God give us wisdom. May the words that we hear and the things that we see that are coming, that are described so obscurely, so fractionally, may they stir up within us a hope and a drive 
to live for Jesus because it's all because of him that will inhabit this great city. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this incredible vision that John gives us here at the end of this book of Revelation of the glory that awaits us, this new heavens, this new earth, this glorious, glorious city illuminated with your glory. Father, I just pray that you would give us wisdom. You would help us to live for heaven. That you would minimize the tears, Lord, the regrets. And you'd maximize our fruit here on this world. And that you'd multiply our righteousnesses and what we accomplish, Lord, in your name while we wait for your return. And we ask tonight that you come quickly. Write these things upon our heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.